Hello, I'm Eric Sorensen, and welcome to the West Block podcast for Sunday, May 27th. On this Sunday, the immigration minister is grilled in the House of Commons over asylum seekers streaming into this country. What is the government doing to reduce the number of illegal border crossings? We'll talk to the minister. Then, President Trump threatens massive tariffs on automobile imports, citing a national security threat. Is it a pressure tactic, with NAFTA hanging in the balance? And the Canadian government calls for an independent inquiry into the deadly violence in the Gaza earlier this month. And Israel isn't happy about that. We'll talk to the Israeli ambassador. But first, just this year, more than 7,600 asylum seekers have entered Canada illegally, three times more than a year ago. The number is expected to grow this summer. This remarkable scene repeated over and over. People avoiding the official border crossing, where they could be turned back to the U.S. as a safe third country. Instead, away from the crossing, they claim asylum and are ushered into the country by the RCMP. The opposition calls for the entire border to be treated as an official entry point. The loophole in the safe third country agreement needs to be closed. Will the minister take responsibility for the erosion of social license for immigration in this country because of his inability to maintain a planned orderly migration system? So, what is the government's plan to combat those crossing into Canada illegally? Joining us now from Montreal is Immigration Minister Ahmed Hussein. Minister, thank you for joining us. Uh, you heard from Michelle Rempel there. Um, she calls it a loophole that should be closed. What can you do specifically in terms of policy to end this scene that is happening with people coming to the border outside of the official border point and just being ushered into the country? Well, they're not just being ushered uh, into the country, Eric. Uh, each and every individual that uh, crosses our border irregularly is arrested on the spot. They are then uh, subjected to a very rigorous uh, security screening. If any uh, risks, if they pose any risks to Canadian society, they are not released into the community. They are immediately detained and they are deported. They are not even given an opportunity to make an asylum claim if they present a risk to Canadian society. Second, on the issue of the Safe Third Country Agreement, it's a, an agreement between two countries, Canada and the United States. It's an agreement that has worked really well for Canada in terms of the orderly management of asylum claimants. Having said that, the agreement is due for modernization. It's uh, 14 years old. We've expressed uh, our desire to uh, begin modernizing it with the United States, and we, those discussions are ongoing, although there are no formal negotiations uh, yet. Even though these people can be dealt with and ultimately many of them will simply go home, the world is full of desperate people and you know the, the numbers are increasing that are coming here with people willing to take a chance on that. And so is there anything more you can do to, to close up that border? I mean the idea, is there anything wrong with the idea of making the entire border an official border crossing? It's, it's actually a very uh, unworkable idea. It's, uh, it's really unworkable because uh, it doesn't take into account that if you make the 9,000-kilometer border an, uh, an official port of entry, then you would have to put customs officials at each of the 9,000 kilometers. Uh, you would literally have to put a customs official uh, every 100 meters. And so uh, Ms. Rempel's idea is simply unworkable. It is something that hasn't been well thought out. Uh, the reason we have the longest uh, undefended uh, uh, border is because uh, 400,000 people, uh, legitimate travelers, cross the border uh, between Canada and the United States on a daily basis. We have 30,000 trucks 
that cross the border uh, between Canada and the United States, simply you know, designating the entire border as a safe uh, as an official port of entry is simply unworkable and would also need uh, the cooperation of the United States. The um, uh, Canadians are very welcoming. Is there a risk, though, with these images and the numbers of people that are coming across and throwing in their lot with the, with the Canadian system, is there a risk of Canadians becoming less welcoming? First of all, uh, let me be absolutely clear. We have had, uh, since last year, a very aggressive and sustained outreach plan and, a, and an outreach program that has interacted and engaged over 600 uh, community organizations, uh, officials, diplomat, diplomats, and uh, non-governmental organizations. And the message there is that we are an open country to regular migration. If you want to come and study or work in Canada, there are ways to do that, to apply through official channels. We do not uh, appreciate or welcome irregular migration. We uh, believe that it's, 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 it's illegal to do that. And the, and the fact of the matter is when there is misinformation, we have corrected it. That outreach campaign has had an impact uh, with specifically, for example, with Haitian nationals and other TPS-affected populations. Uh, we have invested $74 million as part of Budget 2018 in the Immigration Refugee Board. The Re Immigration Refugee Board has recently announced that they will take a last-in, first-out approach uh, to claims made by uh, people who have crossed our border irregularly. That will mean that they will be able, because of our investments and, and further efficiencies that they've been able to achieve, they'll be able to process uh, up to, uh, over 17,000 uh, asylum claims made by irregular migrants alone, in addition to clearing the other backlogs from before. So that would mean right. that in 12 months they'll be able to re finalize cases quickly. Those who have a legitimate claim for refugee status remain in Canada. Those who do not get to be removed quickly. And I think that would send a very strong message that coming to Canada and crossing our border irregularly is not a free ticket to Canada. Do you see it then that, that there will be a surge, because we're obviously in the midst of a surge, and the question is how much, how big will that surge be, that it will play itself out and it will come, because there is worry in Quebec where so many are coming across, and the mayor of Toronto is worried about what he's going to do with however many hundreds uh, that uh, that city may have to take in temporarily. Uh, first of all, we, as I said, not in addition to our outreach program, we are making the necessary investments to the CBSA to expedite and, and conduct more removals of failed claimants. We engage, we have invested more money in the Immigration Refugee Board so that claims can be heard faster, so that decisions can be made faster. Those who do not uh, uh, deserve Canada's protection get to be removed. In addition to that, I was recently in Nigeria last week engaging with their senior officials. I met their foreign minister who has agreed to work with Canada, cooperate closely with us on the deterrence message as well as issuing travel documents for Nigerian nationals who are set to be removed from Canada. We're working very closely with the provinces of Quebec and, and Ontario in the Intergovernmental Task Force on Irregular Migration. We have dealt with the pressure points through that, uh, through that task force. We, are, we have heard loud and clear from uh, provinces that they're facing additional pressures with respect right. to temporary housing, and we will uh, respond accordingly. All right, Minister Hussein, thank you for talking to us. Thank you for having me.
NAFTA negotiators face a deadline this Thursday for a new deal so the U.S. Congress can vote on it before the midterm elections in November. And late last week, President Trump jumped in to scold this country as Washington threatens big tariffs for the auto sector. NAFTA is very difficult. Mexico has been very difficult to deal with. Canada has been very difficult to deal with. They have been taking advantage of the United States for a long time. I am not happy with their requests, but I will tell you, in the end, we win. We will win, and we'll win big. They're very spoiled because nobody's done this, but I will tell you that what they asked for is not fair. And joining us now from Toronto is Unifor President Jerry Dias. Um, Jerry, he says, uh, President Trump says Canada is spoiled. We're very difficult. The threat now of 25% tariffs. First of all, on the tariffs, what would those do? Well, first of all, he is a bizarre individual. 25% tariffs would be fatal for the, for the Canadian industry. But first of all, we really don't know who he's aiming at. He talks about Canada, he talks about Mexico, but if he's talking about a 25% tariff globally, that would hit Europe, obviously the Asian market, Korea. So if he really does have a problem with the auto industry and imports into the United States, I would agree with him. Uh, about four and a half million vehicles are brought in a year to Canada and the United States. We are the number one most dump markets in the world. So if you take a look at four and a half million vehicles coming in from primarily, like I said, Japan, Europe, Korea, that's 15 assembly plants. That's 125,000 direct jobs. That's another million spin-off jobs. So you are talking about a lot of jobs, and we're talking about countries that don't play fair. Japan, we can't ship anything to Japan. We can't ship anything to Korea. We ship very little to Europe. So if it's talking about equalizing uh, the trading relationship, well, then there's some sense to that. But somehow coming after Canada on a 25% auto tariff and saying that he's going to invoke uh, the trade clause 232, that somehow we're a national threat to the United States, is absolutely foolish. I mean, us, a national threat to the United States, what are we going to arrest? Grade three, grade three students for making spitballs, or I mean, it's just ridiculous. So we'll and see. We have to see where the dust settles. Well, yeah, and that's the point. Of course, he in, in those comments, he was not addressing Europe or, or Asian countries. Correct. He was talking about Canada. And is it a ploy? And if so, to what end? What is it he wants to get? Because clearly, he wants to get something that he can show the Trump voters, who are a lot of them were auto workers. Well, I've met three times with Wilbur Ross, the head of the Commerce Department, and we both agree that the problem with the auto industry is not each other, it's with the low wages in Mexico. Uh, we've closed four auto assembly plants here in Canada. They've closed ten in the United States. They've opened eight in Mexico. They're opening two next year. The BMW plant, if you can imagine, is going to pay their employees $1.10 an hour. So we all understand where the jobs are going. Jobs aren't going from the United States to Canada. They're not going from Canada to the United States. In the auto industry, they're all going to Mexico, so I would suggest that we deal with the elephant in the room, which is the mass exodus of good auto jobs to Mexico, to somehow tie us all in and paint us with the same brush is counterproductive and foolish. If Mexico cannot or will not raise wages to the extent that would be called for, and you can imagine how difficult that would be within the total context of the Mexican economy, then where are you? 
Well, first of all, I don't think it's all that difficult within the context of the Mexican economy at all. Look, you've got a Mexican economy that's based on exploitation. Over 50% of the citizens of Mexico live in poverty. So they ended up receiving so many jobs from Canada and the United States, but the Mexican workers were never compensated. So the fact that they've been exploited historically doesn't mean that we should maintain that level of foolishness. There's no reason in this world why a Mexican auto worker ought not to be able to afford to buy, car, to buy the car that they build. So first of all, I don't know what the rush is in getting NAFTA done. There will be a presidential election uh, July 1st in Mexico. You will likely end up with a progressive left candidate, which is a heck of a lot better than the president they have today. Then we can really start talking about moving the needle in a significant way to make sure that Mexican workers indeed have a decent standard of living. There seems to be, though, this move to a deadline by the end of this month. There's talk of a skinny NAFTA, something that would very much talk about uh, auto import rules and such. Is that, uh, is that doable? I don't think so at all. First of all, Mexico has not moved one iota uh, since we started this in August of last year. So for them to make a quantum leap on wages, the elimination of yellow unions, free collective bargaining, for them to change the industrial, uh, the industrial system that they currently have today, within the next month, I doubt it. But over and above that, the United States has a lot of nerve. They have a lot of foolishness on the table that nobody's going to agree to. I mean, some of their proposals on procurement, which gives us less access today than we have had historically, having all of the disputes within NAFTA handled in U.S. courts, I can start to walk through the list of outrageous proposals they have on the table that nobody will agree to. So we've got problems with Mexico, and clearly we have problems with the United States, so they can point the finger at Mexico, they can point the finger at Canada. It's quite easy for them to look in a mirror and see their shortcomings in some of their foolish arguments as well. If there is a changeover to a Democratic Congress in November, does that change the, the equation at all as far as you're concerned? Absolutely. I, the issue was one of jobs. So it can't be jobs to the exclusion of, you know, in the United States, the exclusion of Canada or Mexico. But clearly, I would argue that a U.S. Congress understands what the problem is. I've met with Sandy Levin. I've talked to Democratic senators. The facts are is they understand the problem. The problem is the low labor standards in Mexico. There's not a big problem in the auto industry in Canada and the United States. In fact, it's basically even. Uh, about 65% of all parts we put in Canadian assembled vehicles comes from the United States. So when it comes to auto overall, we're rather balanced, but the clear imbalance is with Mexico. We, we only have a few seconds left. You know, we, we've been at this for months. The, you know, the Canadian language is getting a little more strong about this. Do you feel we are close to some kind of a breakthrough or a break off? No, I, I don't think it's going anywhere in the short term. I think there'll be, uh, the, the, the talks will continue, but there is no way that we can get this thing done in the short term. We've only closed about 10 tables. There's still about 25 outstanding. Um, if, if from August of last year to now, we've only closed, like I said, less than a dozen tables, yeah. there's no chance of getting two dozen more done in the short term, right. not the, the type of contentious issues that are still before us. All right. Jerry Dias of the Unifor, thank you for talking to us. Have a great day. Thank you. It is imperative that we establish the facts of what happened in Gaza, especially given the shooting of Canadian Dr. Tarek Lubani. That is why Canada is calling for an independent investigation to ascertain how the actions of all parties concerned contributed to these events, including...
supported incitement by Hamas. That was Foreign Affairs Minister Christia Freeland calling for an independent inquiry into the deadly violence in Gaza. It left one Canadian doctor injured and about 60 people dead. The Israeli government says the protests and the violence were caused by the terrorist organization Hamas. Much of the world called for an outside investigation. Israel says no. Joining us now is Israel's ambassador to Canada, Nimrod Barkan. Uh, ambassador, thank you for being with us. Um, the Canadian government opposed a UN resolution uh, that it felt was uh, biased against Israel, but still supports an independent investigation. You don't like that idea? Why? Well, uh, first of all, I would like to refer to what uh, Minister Freeland said. Mm -hmm. and, uh, we, I don't think that we really need further investigation into the behavior of the Hamas, because it is self-evident. Hamas, in all video clips that you saw and in all TV reporting, was trying to tear down the fence between Israel and Gaza, break through in order to carry out a pogrom in the uh, Israeli villages and towns along the uh, Gaza-Israeli borders. And that is why we had to make sure that they fail in, to do so. Uh, they sent before them women and children in order to prevent us from preventing them uh, in their nefarious uh, plans. And we had to do everything we could to prevent the terrorists that came after the women and children uh, from uh, penetrating Israel and carrying out this uh, terrible uh, pogrom. Uh, As for an independent investigation into I, that, though. I will not avoid the question. Okay. <laughs> Secondly, uh, there will be an independent investigation, and it will be carried out by the Israeli judicial system. Uh, as many people in Canada who deal with justice know, and you can uh, ask all the Supreme Court uh, justices about that, the Israeli judicial system is free, independent, and not under the authority of the government. And we have established a mechanism for investigating the events in Gaza for every complaint that we get. Uh, and we will also uh, are asking the Canadian government to help us question Dr. Lubani when he gets back here about uh, his experience so that we can look into the matter. So there will be an investigation. It will be independent and it will be carried out by Israel. People worry sometimes, though, that it won't be seen as independent. It is such a contested part of the world. Gaza is not like any place else, and that the idea of an outside agency would be seen as more even-handed just because there is such distrust between the two sides. Well, I don't know what the meaning of outside investigation. The, uh, the investigation that Canada spoke against in the uh, Human Rights Council was an attempt to impose on Israel and the international uh, tribunal, which is like a kangaroo court uh, mm -hmm. in view of the, of the combination of the countries that are in the Human Rights uh, Council. But we believe that our judicial system is more more than capable and has proven itself in the past several times to investigate uh, the claims, uh, whatever claims that are being brought. And uh, first things first, uh, we would like to ask that the Canadian government cooperate with us in the uh, questioning of Dr. Lubani. We propose to do it this week uh, and hopefully that will take place. Among the claims is that there was a, a lack of proportionality that, you know, when 60 people ended up dying. Um, it, it, do you think that the findings could come up with something that says there was wrongdoing or there was more force than necessary? 
Well, uh, every finding will be separate according to every complaint. And there have been uh, instances in the past in which uh, soldiers and officers were put on trial because uh, the um, judge advocate general of the military has concluded that they overstepped uh, their instructions. Uh, so that can happen uh, here too. There's no uh, question about that. But first of all, we need to do it. Uh, an outside inquiry will be a total politicization of justice, an attempt to crucify Israel and not to investigate the cases. How do you feel about Canada siding on the issue with, uh, with uh, many other countries for an in, what they call an independent investigation? There was a time under the uh, Prime Minister Stephen Harper that Canada was seen more within, I'd say, the orbit of Israeli views on issues like this. Many of the votes that happened at the UN, it was just Canada, US, Australia together against the world. Do you see Canada as even-handed? The voting pattern uh, of Canada in the international organizations has continued under this government as it was under Prime Minister Harper. Uh, so uh, I think that the friendship between Israel and Canada has been proven. As you can imagine, uh, we disagreed with the statement uh, that was made. Uh, we felt that it accused Israel uh, unfairly, and uh, we feel that there is not enough understanding uh, of the danger that uh, the Hamas uh, attempted breakthrough into Israel under the rubric of return, which means calling for the destruction of Israel, uh, was tried. And we look forward to uh, Canada realizing the danger that the Hamas uh, not so innocent protest uh, posed to us. Canada is looking for a seat on the Security Council. There are a lot of Arab countries with a lot of votes. Do you think there's any kind of Canadian calculation that is taking that into account as it positions itself on issues like this? This question you should uh, ask the Canadian government, not the Israeli government. Well, I didn't know if you had a view on that. Um, the, the, the Prime Minister Netanyahu has called Jerusalem the undivided capital. Do you see in a, in a more perfect world that, it, that East Jerusalem could be the capital for the Palestinians? Well, Israel considers the, its capital undivided. The various ideas that exist into uh, incorporating the uh, very large uh, Palestinian presence in the city uh, with the uh, Jewish presence in the city have been discussed uh, in the past. Unfortunately, the problem is that the Palestinians are not willing to negotiate right now, so there is no way in which we can explore such ideas. And the problem is that the Palestinians refuse to accept Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state and refuse to negotiate with it, and that is really is the major stumbling block in, the, in any uh, potential progress. And, and the last thing that some people see is also a stumbling block that was the expansion of, uh, of, of Israeli control in the disputed territories and that that is not moving things more towards peace, but it continues to kind of just fire up uh, opposition. History has proved, and look at the history of the Israeli-Egyptian uh, negotiations, that many things can happen when the atmosphere uh, changes. But as I said, the problem is that the Palestinian leadership at the moment does not want to negotiate. So, uh, of course, nothing can be done at the moment. Ambassador Barkhan, thank you for talking to us. Thank you very much for having me. I'm Eric Sorensen. Thank you for listening to the West Block podcast. For more, go to our website, thewestblock.ca, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and tune in again next week for another West Block.